0: Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is the first lecture in our foot and ankle lecture series. In this lecture, we are going to focus on disorders of the great toe. Specifically, we'll talk about hallux valgus deformity or bunions, hallux rigidus or arthritis, turf toe, and hallux varus deformity. Alright, let's dive right in and begin with bunions, also known as a hallux valgus deformity. So what causes a bunion to develop? Well, it's actually not just one thing. It's more of a complex deformity involving multiple joints within the first ray. First, you have valgus angulation of the phalanx, which is countered by a varus deviation of the first metatarsal. As the metatarsal drifts into its varus position, the toe flexors try their best to stay in the same position, which leaves them in a lateral position relative to the metatarsal head. This is evidenced by the location of the sesmoid complex lateral to the metatarsal head. Over time, the medial soft tissues of the MTP joint will attenuate and stretch, while the lateral joint will become contracted. The abductor halicus will drift from its medial position into a plantar and more lateral position, which causes the phalanx to plantar flex and pronate. The adductor tendon also exacerbates the deformity as it pulls on the fibular sesmoid and lateral side of the proximal phalanx. The lateral drift of the extensor hallucis longus and flexor hallucis longus also create a muscular imbalance that progresses the deformity further. Progressive deformity may lead to loss of weight bearing under the first metatarsal and transfer of the load of the patient onto the lesser metatarsals resulting in transfer metatarsalgia. So who is it that gets hallux valgus deformity? Well this occurs more commonly in women than men and tends to run in families. In fact, up to 70% of patients described some family member that had the disorder. Hallux valgus deformity has been associated with narrow toe box shoes, such as those seen with high heels. Patients generally present with a chief complaint of pain and difficulty with shoe wear. They may be tender to palpation over the medial aspect of the MTP joint. On physical examination, there will be swelling, redness, and possibly callus formation over the first MTP joint. It is important to assess for hypermobility at the first tarsometatarsal joint. The mobility of the MTP joint is important to assess to determine if it can be corrected back to neutral. Any deformity at the interphalangeal joint should also be documented. Many times, halgus valgus is also associated with lesser toe deformities such as a hammer toe deformity, so it is important to assess the lesser toes as well. Now what is our first diagnostic step? Plain radiographs. Standard radiographs should include a weight-bearing AP lateral and foot x-ray, and typically these are the only imaging studies required. There are four radiographic measurements that we use to assess the degree of deformity and plan for our surgical correction. So first up is the creatively named hallux valgus angle. This is measured with a line down the first metatarsal and a line down the proximal phalanx. The normal angle is less than 15 degrees. Next up is the intermetatarsal angle. This is an angle between the first metatarsal and second metatarsal, In this angle, a normal angle is less than nine degrees. The third angle is the distal metatarsal articular angle. This is a line down the long axis of the first metatarsal and a line perpendicular to a line connecting the distal articular cartilaginous cap. This measurement can help you to determine if the joint has become incongruous. Let's talk for a second about what that means. The phalanx can deviate in one of two ways. It can either sublux laterally at the MTP joint, meaning the articular surface of the metatarsal head does not follow it into the lateral position, or it can deform while retaining a congruent joint, meaning the distal articular surface of the first metatarsal head deviates laterally following the proximal phalanx. The last angle that we look at is the hallux valgus interphalangeus angle. This is a line between the long axis of the distal phalanx and the long axis of the proximal phalanx. The normal angle is less than 10 degrees. So those are the four angles, the hallux valgus angle, the intermetatarsal angle, the distal metatarsal articular angle, and the hallux valgus interphalangeus angle. Those measurements are important to know and pretty straightforward. It is what we do with those measurements that can become challenging. So how do we treat patients that have a hallux valgus deformity? Well, as you would expect, first-line treatment involves shoe modification with wide toe boxes, pads, and orthoses. The idea here is to make more room. Orthoses tend to be more beneficial in patients with additional deformity, including a PES planus or transfer metatarsalgia. Let's touch on that briefly. What is transfer metatarsalgia? Remember that the first metatarsal bears approximately 30 to 50% of the body weight during gait cycle. As the metatarsal drifts into varus, it becomes less efficient, and additional weight gets borne through the lesser metatarsals, and this leads to transfer metatarsalgia. All right, so now we've tried activity modification, and it's failed, and now it's time to plan for surgery for our patient with hallux valgus. So how do we choose our procedure? Well, it depends on the degree of deformity, which we've calculated from the four radiographic measurements taken earlier. First of all, solitary soft tissue procedures are rarely indicated. Usually, these are performed along with some sort of bony reconstruction. The most common soft tissue procedure is the modified McBride. This involves releasing the adductor from the lateral sesamoid and proximal phalanx, releasing the contracted lateral capsule, and imbricating the stretched and often attenuated medial capsule. Again, this is usually the cherry on top for some other bony procedure, rarely done in isolation. You might consider it in a patient with an HVA angle of less than 25 degrees and an IMA angle less than 15 degrees. Modified McBride procedures are indicated when there is joint incongruity at the MTP joint. The goal is for the soft tissue procedure to pull the proximal phalanx back over the normal articular surface of the metatarsal head. Alright, now let's talk about some osteotomies. Let's start off with mild disease. If the patient has an HVA angle of less than 25 degrees and an IMA angle of less than 13 degrees, a distal metatarsal osteotomy, such as a chevron osteotomy, would be indicated. In patients with an increased distal metatarsal articular angle and a congruent joint with more moderate disease, as evidenced by an HVA angle between 26 and 40 degrees and an IMA angle between 13 and 15 degrees, the patient may benefit from a proximal metatarsal osteotomy with a modified McBride procedure. More severe disease as defined as an HVA angle between 41 and 50 degrees and an IMA angle between 16 and 20 degrees. For these patients, a double osteotomy or a proximal and distal osteotomy would be indicated. Next up are patients with a hypermobile first ray. In other words, patients with some degree of instability at the tarsometatarsal joint. In patients with a hypermobile tarsometatarsal joint, they should be treated with a tarsometatarsal arthrodesis, also known as a lapidus procedure. An aching osteotomy is a proximal phalanx medial closing wedge osteotomy that is useful for hallux valgus interphalangeus, in other words, hallux valgus at the IP joint. And finally, is the rarely used Keller resection arthroplasty. The Keller resection arthroplasty is a resection of the base of the proximal phalanx. It is only very rarely used, secondary to complications including residual pain, cock-up toe deformity, and decreased function. It may be used in the elderly, low-demand patient population with minimal functional needs. There are several complications associated with hallux valgus correction surgery, and patients need to be made aware of these, especially if you get the feeling that they are pursuing correction for cosmetic needs. Overcorrection of the IMA angle can lead to a hallux varus deformity. Any bony procedure that results in a dorsal malunion will lead to transfer metatarsalgia as the first metatarsal no longer bears its appropriate load. Of particular concern for this complication are lapidus fusion procedures. Distal osteotomies run the risk of developing avascular necrosis in the distal segment. And finally, the most common cause of failure in hallux valgus correction surgery is recurrence. And this is generally due to inadequate preoperative planning or inappropriately chosen procedures. Overall, there is a lot to know about hallux valgus correction procedures. I would focus on understanding the angles in terms of what is mild, moderate, and severe and know the corrective procedures and the complications associated with each. All right, that's enough for bunion correction surgery. Let's move on. And the natural progression then is to talk about hallux varus. Hallux varus is a medial deviation of the great toe at the MTP joint. In other words, a hallux valgus angle of zero degrees or less. This can occur in inflammatory diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis or neurologic disease, but most commonly occurs as a postoperative complication of hallux valgus correction surgery. In other words, the most common cause of hallux varus is iatrogenic. Common surgical missteps that can lead to the occurrence of hallux varus deformity include excessive tightening of the medial structures, over-resection of the medial eminence, over-correction of the IMA, excision of the fibular sesamoid, and excessive lateral capsule release. Now, how do patients with hallux virus present? Well, typically, hallux virus deformity is frequently pain-free. However, there may be decreased range of motion and there may be particular challenges with shoe wear. On exam, you'll wanna see if the deformity is correctable or fixed, both at the MTP and IP joints. Look for range of motion flexion and extension, as well as evaluate for any medial bowstringing of the tendons. Initial imaging workup includes plain radiographs. Radiographs can help to determine the etiology of the deformity. Remember that overcorrection of the IMA during bunion correction surgery is a common cause of developing hallux varus down the road. Also, look for any missing lateral sesamoid. In the face of a sesamoid fracture that has failed conservative treatment, some surgeons will opt to resect the painful sesamoid, and this can also lead to varus drift of the great toe. So how do we treat our patients with hallux varus deformity? of non-operative treatment includes shoe modification and taping or splinting. If the deformity has developed acutely within the post-operative period of bunion correction surgery, then splinting may allow the soft tissues to heal adequately enough to straighten the toe. If, however, non-operative treatment fails, there are several surgical options depending on whether it is a fixed or flexible deformity and if the underlying cause was an initial overcorrection of the IMA angle. If the cause was overcorrection of the IMA angle, then a revision osteotomy would be indicated. For flexible deformities, tendon transfers and medial capsular release may be indicated. And for fixed deformities, an MTP arthrodesis would be the best option. The most important thing to keep in mind about hallux valgus vagus deformity are its causes, overcorrection of the IMA, resection of too much of the medial eminence, and resection of the lateral sesamoid. All right, up next is arthritis. So, DJD of the first MTP joint, also known as Hallux Rigidus. Hallux Rigidus is thought to occur secondary to repetitive microtrauma at the MTP joint, leading to degeneration of the joint surface. However, it may also occur secondary to an acute traumatic injury to the MTP joint. So, how do patients with Hallux Rigidus present? Patients typically present with stiffness and pain at the first MTP joint that is worse with motion. Provocative exam maneuvers include pain with axial loading of the great toe, also known as the grind test, and pain with dorsiflexion of the toe. They may have some paresthesias over the dorsal great toe if the dorsal cutaneous nerves have become compressed by any osteophytes. The initial workup includes plain radiographs of the first toe. Radiographs of the toe will show typical osteoarthritic changes, including joint space narrowing, subchondral sclerosis, and subchondral cysts. Osteophytes may also be present. Of particular concern with hallux rigidus is the dorsal osteophyte, which can become symptomatic with shoe wear and with dorsiflexion. Initial treatment for hallux rigidus deformity includes activity modification, anti-inflammatories, and orthotics. The typical orthotic that you will see on exams is a Morton's extension orthotic with a stiff foot plate. The principle behind orthotics is to limit motion at the MTP joint. A high toe shoebox that can accommodate any dorsal osteophytes may also be beneficial. If the patient fails conservative management, they may undergo operative intervention. Patients with a symptomatic dorsal osteophyte that is painful with dorsiflexion and shoe wear should undergo a dorsal chylectomy. This involves removing 25 to 30 percent of the dorsal aspect of the metatarsal head. If the patient's primary issue is a stiffness and limited dorsiflexion, which is interfering with their gait, they may undergo a Moberg procedure or a dorsal closing wedge osteotomy of the proximal phalanx. And finally, as with hallux valgus, a Keller procedure or a resection of the base of the proximal phalanx is rarely performed secondary to its postoperative complications. Again, the Keller procedure or Keller resection arthroplasty is reserved mainly for elderly, low-demand patients with minimal ambulatory status. Finally, younger patients with severe arthritis and joint space narrowing can undergo a joint arthrodesis in which the MTP joint is fused into place. This is done in approximately 15 degrees of valgus and 15 degrees of dorsiflexion. All right, so for hallux rigidus, just remember that the Morton's extension orthotic is the orthotic of choice. Surgical treatment for those with painful dorsal impingement and a large dorsal osteophyte is a and severe arthritis in younger patients can be treated with a great toe fusion. For elderly low-demand patients with minimal ambulatory needs, a keller resection arthroplasty can be performed, but know that there are significant postoperative complications of that procedure. The last issues that we will discuss with regard to pathology surrounding the great toe are, are sesamoid injuries and turf toe. Though small, the sesamoids of the great toe have an important role when it comes to foot function. The flexor halicus brevis inserts into the base of each of the sesamoid bones. These increase the mechanical advantage of the flexor halicus brevis, and given their location on either side of the FHL, serve as protectors of the flexor halicus longus tendon. They also help to absorb some of the weight bearing along the medial column of the foot. About 10 to 25% of individuals will have a bipartite sesamoid, which occurs nearly all of the time in the tibial sesamoid. In those patients that have a bipartite sesamoid, in about 25% of them, it occurs bilaterally. Sesamoid injuries commonly occur with forced dorsiflexion of the great toe. There are several different types of injuries to the sesamoid complex, including fractures, dislocations, turf toe injuries, and sesamoiditis. The tibial sesamoid is injured more commonly than fibula sesamoid. Sesamoiditis is more common in some inflammatory arthropathies, including reactive arthritis, stereotic arthritis, and rheumatoid arthritis. Patients will typically complain of pain directly at the base of the first MTP joint on the plantar side of the foot. They will be tender to palpation in this area, and the pain may be reproduced with forced dorsiflexion of the great toe. Radiographs are frequently negative, however, sometimes a fracture may be able to be appreciated. Medial oblique and axial sesmoid views should be ordered to fully visualize each bone. An MRI can be helpful in visualizing a fracture or any soft tissue injuries if clinical suspicion remains but radiographs are negative. Bone scans can be also be useful, however, they have up to a 30% false positive rate, so it's important to compare the findings to the contralateral side and look for any differences. Now, how do we treat sesmoid issues? First-line treatment for fractures includes restriction of weight-bearing and activity modification. Typically, there is no need to immobilize the patient. However, some surgeons advocate for a stiff orthosis to decrease stress across the sesmoid. If a patient fails conservative treatment, partial or complete sesmoidectomy can be performed. Complications or removal depend on which of the sesmoids was removed. As mentioned earlier, removal of the fibular sesmoid can lead to hallux varus. Removal of the tibial sesamoid can lead to hallux valgus, and removal of both bones can lead to a cockup deformity. This can be prevented by repairing the flexor hallucis brevis tendon and surrounding soft tissues after excision of the bone. Lastly in this lecture, let's talk about turf toe injury. Turf toe injury is caused by a hyperextension injury to the great toe at the MTP joint and is commonly seen in football players. The hyperextension injury causes tearing of the plantar plate and ligamentous complex. Typically, this is a tear off of the proximal phalanx. These are graded grade 1 through 3, 1 being a sprain and 3 being a complete tear. Patients will have pain and swelling over the plantar aspect of the MTP joint. Pain can be reproduced with hyperextension of the great toe. Radiographs may show displacement of the sesamoids or possibly a sesamoid fracture. If the x-rays are negative, an MRI can be obtained which would show a plantar plate disruption. Turf toe is initially managed with non-operative modalities, including rest, ice, taping, or a stiff-soled shoe. If the patient remains symptomatic or has dorsal instability, then surgical repair may be indicated. This would include repair or excision of any possible sesamoid fracture and fixation of the plantar plate if it is torn or disrupted. Patients will be made non-weight-bearing post-operatively with an expected return to sport in three or four months. All right, that concludes our talk on pathology of the first ray and great toe. Hallux valgus is a very common condition and comes up frequently on exams, so I'd be sure to have that one down cold. In the next lecture, we will discuss disorders involving the lesser toes. As always, please check back to the lecture for updates and modifications. Thanks for listening.